you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Good morning, Redeemer Church. Uh, happy Sunday. It's a pleasure to uh, be able to bring the message to you this morning. Uh, this morning we will be in Hebrews 12, uh, starting in verse 5, so if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Um, this morning, we're going to be talking about everybody's favorite subject, which is discipline. And if you're anything like me, discipline um, means basically nothing to you. So um, nobody likes discipline. Nobody likes talking about discipline. Um, it's not a fun thing to experience in the moment, uh, much less having to um, hand discipline down to somebody. Um, the act of being disciplined in a task or uh, an endeavor is the worst part of the experience. But discipline is a necessary thing. And at the end of the day, what I hope to express to you through this passage is that discipline is good and necessary and profitable for the Christian. When we think of the word discipline, uh, it kind of breaks down into two parts. Having discipline and being disciplined. And this morning, our text today will focus on the latter of those two. Now, um, when we think of discipline, I think everybody can kind of relate that uh, to the experience of, of discipline from a parent to a child. As a, as a child, I was not spanked a lot, and I'm sure many of you can uh, say, well, well, that explains a whole lot. Um, but that was because my mom uh, had put the fear in me at a young age um, that any time she mentioned the belt, I knew it was over. I didn't have to uh, uh, be told twice. Um, anytime the, the belt was mentioned, I stopped what I was doing because she had put that fear in me from a young age that if the belt was mentioned, that's when it was over. She had the trump card. She knew that if I uh, was you know, getting on her last nerve, that's all she had to say. It's never a pleasant topic, discipline. But it's a necessary one, especially for the Christian. Leading a disciplined life, embracing discipline from others, and wielding good discipline towards others are hallmarks of the Christian faith. And that's at the heart of our passage today. So if you would, turn with me to Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we're approaching the end of our time in Hebrews. Um, 
the author is beginning his descent. Um, he's, he's giving his final exhortations and encouragements to the readers, to the audience. In Hebrews 10, he encouraged us to, to maintain our faith, to continue to meet together, to, um, to endure the trials that they were facing. In Hebrews 11, we're given examples of faithful men and women and encouraged to emulate them, to, to learn and be encouraged by their faith. And in the first part of Hebrews 12, we, we looked at the ultimate, ultimate example of this in Jesus. Jesus is the author and the perfecter. He's, he's run the race before us. He, he took the punishment on the cross for us. And last week we heard from, from Pastor Nathan a great encouragement to shed the weights, um, those things that, that aren't necessarily sinful, but they aren't helpful in our Christian life either, the things that kind of distract us from our purpose but to also not allow sin that wants to trip us up to do so. We were encouraged to look toward Jesus as the perfect example of what the Christian life should look like and to be reminded of what Christ has done to enable us to run the race in the first place. But now the author turns his attention to encourage his audience and us about discipline. So if you'll remember... This letter was written to Christians who were being persecuted, who were facing adversity in their faith. They were being harassed and excluded from society because of their faith. So the author writes this letter to them to encourage them to persevere. And here in our text, he explains that something that that none of us necessarily want to hear or uh, desire to be true, but, but we know it is. That discipline, the Lord's discipline, is good for us. The suffering that they face, the suffering that we face now, is a type of discipline, a sharpening from the Lord. And it is good, and it is necessary, and it is profitable. So this morning I want to look at those three truths in this text. But before we do, I want to make sure there's no misconception out there about what we mean when we're talking about Discipline. You see, when we hear the word discipline, we often interpret punishment. Discipline and punishment are not the same thing. The two are often confused, but, but punishment is retribution for an offense that you've committed. Punishment is not necessarily meant to teach you anything. It's just payback. It's retribution. Discipline, on the other hand, is the practice of training and educating. And where the confusion comes into play is often some will use punishment as a part of the discipline. But the two are not necessarily the same. And in our context, when we talk about discipline, we're not talking about punishment. When the author writes to this audience, when when we read this text, we are not talking about punishment for something that we've done or neglected to do. What we're talking about is being trained and educated by the Lord, corrected by the Lord, and encouraged. So, I want to make three things clear before we jump into the main text here. So, we often think of discipline as punishment for something that we've done, and in this context, that is not the case. While the readers of this 
uh, original letter are being persecuted. They're not being disciplined by the Lord, uh, or sorry, not being punished by the Lord uh, uh, to by that persecution. The second thing is God does not punish Christians for their sin. Now, I know that sounds strange on the surface, but it's true. The punishment for the sin of the Christian was taken by Jesus. Christ was punished for our sin. And there is no longer punishment for the Christian in, in terms of their sin. And Romans 8 makes that very clear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But just because there is no punishment left for sin, that doesn't mean that we won't be disciplined for our sin. You see, God uses discipline to teach us, to correct us, but also to help wean us away from sin and to dissuade us from from allowing sin to to use its seductiveness to get its hooks in us. And lastly, while the punishment for sin was taken by Jesus on the cross, the consequences of sin are still very much in play. You see, God works those consequences, though, for our good. Though they might be painful, while they may still hurt, God is using them for our good and for his glory. So now that we kind of understand what we mean by the word discipline, we'll jump into our text together. Starting in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation and addresses uh, that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when approved, reproved by him. So right off the bat here, the author is quoting from Proverbs 3, uh, verses 11 through 12. And he uses this proverb um, as a kind of conventional wisdom, something that this audience would have been familiar with. This is something that would have been the equivalent of like a a well-understood cultural piece of wisdom. Uh, something like in our, in our day, something equivalent to us would be like getting an inspection done on your house before you buy it or looking both ways before crossing your street or never under any circumstances eating at Waffle House. Just common sense wisdom here. So when he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him, this would have been something that would have rung in the ears of, of his audience. They would have understood this. They would have known this. And so he's telling them something that they already know and reminding them of it. So just to, to reinforce this, the word discipline here is the Greek word padeia, which means discipline or training. And it's only used a few times in the New Testament, and most of them are here in Hebrews 12. But the only other usage of it in the New Testament is in Ephesians, when Paul uh, exhorts his readers, fathers do not provoke their children to anger, but, but to bring them up in discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So it has this sense of instruction or discipline, training, correcting, not punishment. So this is a, this is a positive ver- version of discipline that is meant to encourage and train the person receiving it. The author chooses this quotation in Proverbs so that his readers will understand that the the adversity that they're facing should be viewed in this light. This is not a punishment for their sin. This is not just 
cold, hard fate, uh, throwing them a, a bad hand. This is God orchestrating these events for their good. And, and almost as if he anticipates some sort of response like, well, that's all well and good, but why does the Lord feel like he needs to discipline us? What have we done? Are we not faithful? Have we not given our life to this? He then says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So God is not punishing them. He's disciplining them and he's doing so because he loves them. No, no person with any love towards another would ever hope that that person would just stagnate. They wouldn't sit back and watch them fade into oblivion. They would encourage them, spur them on. Push them to grow. Just like a father to a son, God is pushing us. But, but discipline in this context is, is different than just being a cheerleader. God is not just on the sidelines saying, way to go, keep going. It's positive, but it isn't always nice. See, in high school, uh, it seems like a, a century ago, I was uh, a multi-sport athlete. I played football because I'm a good American. And I had a football coach who was a notorious yeller. I mean, everything. It was just constant. And parents complained all the time because when he would yell at their kid, they interpreted that as, you're singling out my kid. You're, you hate my kid. What, what are you doing? But what they didn't understand was that the reason he was yelling at them was not because he hated them. He was yelling at them because he expected more and wanted the best out of them. As a player, though, it was the worst in the moment. You dropped a pass. You ran the wrong way on a blocking assignment. You didn't wrap up. You knew you were going to get the full hairdryer treatment. He was going to lay into you, and you knew it. And so everyone dreaded it. We all dreaded the, the tongue lashing that was going to come as a result. But at the end of the day, it made us better. Because we knew that we couldn't afford to make mistakes, and we certainly didn't want to. And I took that same philosophy into my own coaching career. I coached soccer for a tiny little school in Kansas, and every parent, opposing player, coach, fan, even the officials, they knew me as the yelling coach. There would not be a game that I could make it to halftime even and still have a voice. And there were two reasons for this. The first is uh, soccer fields are big, and so by default, I'd have to yell if I was going to try and get instruction to the other side of the field. But two, because if when they did something wrong and I needed to get something out of them, I knew that they would see that passion in me. And I wanted that same uh, principle to apply from my days as a player to them. I wanted them to know that, that failure was not an option. And there was going to be discipline in the form of yelling, um, in the form of correction as a result. It didn't make us the most popular uh, coaching staff in the world, but our players respected it. 
And look, all analogies about God break down at some point. But God's love for us is too great not to push us into maturity. He disciplines, he sends adversity, he uses suffering, and he works pain for our good because he loves us too much to stop yelling. One thing anyone who's played team sports with a coach like that understands is for as, for as awful as it feels in the moment to be yelled at, what feels even worse is when they stop yelling. Because once they've stopped yelling at you, it means they've given up on you. Now, God will never give up on you. So that's where the analogy breaks down. But, but I think instinctively we can all resonate with this idea that while punishment or while discipline is not pleasant, we benefit and it is for our good, especially when it comes to the Lord's discipline in our lives. This moves us into verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? So now the author is, is bringing this back to the reader's situation. They're facing adversity. They're facing persecution. And again, they're being encouraged to endure it. Endurance and perseverance are two of the major themes in the book of Hebrews. And it's repeated over and over again. And the difference between all those other times and this time is that in these verses, the author is stating that God is using that adversity and that persecution to discipline them as a father would a son. Again, this isn't just fate or uh, un, you know, a lack of luck. This is God orchestrating this for their good. So in other words, it's as if God is saying, don't think for a second that I'm not in absolute control of the situation. I'm doing this for your good. So endure. So then the author appeals to the, the natural role and relationship of a father and a son to help them to help this point be driven home. Every son is disciplined by their father. So it is a natural part of that relationship. So why would it be any different with our Heavenly Father. Now, it's, it's tempting to think uh, when situations for discipline arise, it's, it's tempting to just let them off the hook. It's tempting to think that the most loving thing to do is to just not, not come down heavy on them. They know they did something wrong. They'll think about it. It'll be fine. And sometimes that might be. But every parent will tell you the temptation is strong to just ignore the action. But often the best thing to do is to address it. So the discipline of the Lord is good because it is for our benefit. Experiencing and enduring, it proves us to be true sons. Just as earthly fathers discipline their children out of a mature love for them, so our Heavenly Father disciplines those whom He loves. And as we'll see, even with the best of intentions, our discipline ultimately will fall short because we are finite and imperfect compared to God. But God's discipline is perfect. No detail or lesson is ever missed. And that brings us to the second thing that we need to take 
from this passage about discipline. And that is that the discipline of the Lord is necessary. Starting in verse 8. If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons. Not true sons or daughters at all. Now I think, I think on the surface this can seem a little harsh. But on deep level, I think we all feel this. If you're a parent, and you, you've likely experienced this in a very real way, how many of you have felt the sheer awkwardness of trying to discipline someone else's children? Now, that's awkward on the surface, but even if you've known the, the family forever, it's still awkward to try and discipline those children, much less if you barely know them at all. And why is that? Because at the end of the day, deep down, you know, they're not your children. They're not, you're not accountable to them. You're not accountable for them. And so to discipline them just seems strange, seems wrong. See, in, in the ancient world, illegitimate children did not have the same rights and privileges as true children. So an illegitimate child um, was not given access to the education that legitimate children were. Illegitimate children were not a part of the will. They didn't stand to, to gain from the inheritance as true children would. The discipline of the Lord is necessary because it identifies us as legitimate children of God. True sons and daughters face the rigors of training and education at the Father's table. Because at the end of the day, the Father intends for them to inherit his estate. So one should take heart when trials come your way because it is the discipline of the Lord maturing you and growing you into true sons and daughters of the king. And what a blessed privilege that is. Moving on. Moreover, we have all had few human fathers who disciplined us and, respect, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. So again, the author is appealing to his audience through their experiences in their own lives. Not only could they relate to the experience of, of being disciplined by their earthly parents, but as they grew older, they could look back and respect their parents for the job that they did. And you and I are the same. We understand in hindsight the benefit that we gained from the discipline they handed down to us. However, the author wants to, to make sure he draws a distinction here between earthly fathers and a heavenly father. They disciplined us as they thought best. Ultimately, at the end of the day, human parents are finite and sinful. I'm not a parent yet, but I can only imagine that there are times as a parent, where you discipline your children out of something less than perfect wisdom. And sometimes, 
it's a little disproportionate to the crime. I know there were times when my mom, who was a great mom, would go to that belt very quickly because mama was stressed and didn't want to be have to tell me a second time. So even if it was something small, the struggle for all parents is knowing when and how to discipline. And I imagine there's a lot of second guessing and guilt that can come from it. Because we are imperfect. But even if but if we can look back at the imperfect job our parents did with us, if we can look in the mirror and see the benefit of of what kind of person we are today because of the discipline they gave us, if we can do that, how much more should we then submit and respect the discipline of the Lord? Because the discipline of the Lord is perfect. It is for our good. It is necessary. And lastly, it's profitable. See, the author kind of kind of tips his hand here at the end of verse 10 in order that we may share in his holiness. Discipline is necessary because it conforms us to the image of Christ. It molds us into his image so that we can bring him glory and find true joy. But, but the discipline of the Lord is not just about what God is getting out of us. It's profitable for us as well. We gain from it. So lastly, the discipline of the Lord is profitable. Verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. See, the author kind of levels with the audience for a moment. He admits that while we can talk about discipline hypothetically, uh, real suffering and real pain, they don't often come off with these um, optimistic uh, interpretations. When we face these things in reality, they hurt. They're unpleasant. Real life is its not like the Cosby show. We don't, we don't get a little uh, ribbon tied into a bow at the end of a 30-minute plot line. We don't always get the resolution of a happy ending. At least not right away. But what is even more real than the real frustrations, the real pain, the inconveniences of discipline is the benefit that it has for us. What's even more real than all those things is the promise of God that he will work all of these things for our good. That the endurance, uh, that with endurance and perseverance, we will profit with a harvest of righteousness. So the author is, is throwing down a very real truth that contradicts all the, the health and wealth gospel and, and prosperity preachers, what they want you to believe. 
What the author of Hebrews is saying here echoes with all of Scripture. That a life for the Lord is not going to be an easy one. There is going to be pain. There is going to be suffering. There is going to be discipline. But at the end of the day, it's worth it. Because at the end of the day, the Lord is creating in us the image of his son who ran this race perfectly before us. He said, one of the, one of the only guarantees he gave to his disciples before leaving this earth was that they were going to be hated on account of him. But in encouragement, he told them, take heart, because I've overcome the world. See, part of, part of what makes modern Bible reading and preaching very difficult is because um, we have such a short amount of time to try and uh, get across a message. But, but in doing so, we miss uh, some of the movements and overarching themes in a, in a, in a letter like this. Hebrews is long, but it was a letter that was meant to be read in one sitting. And so, as we read this text, it stands to reason that the, the author still has verses, uh, verse 3 in his mind as he's writing. Verses 2 and 3, as he writes verse 11, fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus, the perfect example. And so, as he writes verse 11, he's saying, still consider Jesus because Jesus endured the discipline of the Father. And in a very real way, he endured the punishment we deserved as well. He endured the wrath of God on the cross, but but his endurance produced a harvest of righteousness that we are benefiting from 2,000 years later. You and I gained from his reward. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, is the ultimate example to the Christian on the goodness of God's discipline. The necessity of God's discipline. And the profitability of God's discipline. And we should look with hope at every trial that comes our way because God is using it to produce in us a harvest of righteousness that will benefit every person we come into contact with. In closing, I, I wanted to share just a personal testimony about this passage from my own life. In the summer of 2012, I had, I had just finished my first year at Ozark Christian College down in Joplin. Um, I was studying for ministry. I wanted to be a preacher. And I was, I was riding high. I was well-liked by people. I had a great group of friends. I was on the school's traveling worship team. I, I had... Um, been uh, hired to be on the the school's camp teams to travel around during the summer and and promote the school. It was an awesome, awesome opportunity. Well, about halfway through that summer, I get a call from my director telling me that my team and I needed to, to pull out right in the middle of a week of camp and come back to the school. It was very strange, and we were all a little bit confused, but we did. A little backstory, you see, 
for years, I had been fighting a mostly losing battle with um, a specific sin issue in my life, and, and that had followed me into college. And that summer, somehow, it had come to the attention of the administration that while I was at school, I had been engaged in that activity, and, and as a result, not only were they pulling me from the field, but I was being expelled from the school. Needless to say, I was devastated. For years and years, I had dreamed of going to OCC, of, of studying what I was studying, of, of learning under the professors that I was learning under, of being involved in the very activities that I was involved in. And then in an instant, it was all ripped away from me because of my sin. But what was even worse is in the moment I felt an arrogance. I felt that it was, it was an injustice because I knew for a fact that this was not a small problem on that campus or anywhere for that matter. So why was I being singled out? Why was I the one who was being punished? And I carried that bitterness and anger with me for a year and a half. I probably wrote a dozen scathing emails that I never sent. I was angry. And it took a year and a half for God to get through to me. By his grace, I was surrounded by godly friends who, who rather than let me wallow in my own self-pity, encouraged me and challenged me. So later that year, I, I repented. I took responsibility. I sought help. And finally, in the spring semester of 2014, I was allowed to return to finish my studies. God used this experience to discipline me. And I remember coming across this very passage in Hebrews. Sitting in my room one night, and I reluctantly opened up my Bible and started reading from Hebrews. And as I came across this passage, it was like the Holy Spirit just struck me. So I took... Uh, the, the underside of a, a shoe, uh, shoebox lid, and I wrote with a sharpie in big block letters, Hebrews 12, 4 through 11, and I just wrote discipline. And I pinned it to my wall so that I could see it every single day because it was an anchor for me. Because in the depths of my shame and in my depression, I would see it and be reminded that God disciplines true sons. But he wasn't punishing me. He was sanctifying me. And it was because of this massive event in my own life that I was finally able to start working through my issues. And I can honestly say that I look back now in thankfulness for the experience. Thankful that God 
somehow brought this to the attention of the administration, that they had the strength to make a hard decision, knowing it was going to cause me pain. Because at the end of the day, it was the absolute best thing that could have happened. God could have let me continue in my sin and it would have destroyed me. But because he loved me, because he loves us, he doesn't sit on the sidelines and tell us to do better. He does something about it. The discipline of the Lord is painful. The discipline of the Lord is frustrating. Discipline of the Lord is inconvenient. But the discipline of the Lord is good. And it is necessary. And it is profitable. So Christian, I encourage you. I implore you. Endure the discipline of the Lord.